Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hey, everyone. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. I trust everyone listening today is staying safe right now. I recorded this conversation with photographer Tyler Mitchell last week. For the sake of transparency, I mention this because in the intervening seven days, yet another black man has been needlessly shot by the police. The man's name is Jacob Blake. You have likely read the details by now. Perhaps you have even seen the video of his shooting. Once again, an armed white officer, surrounded by other armed officers, shot Blake. He is now reported to be paralyzed. He is the father of six children, three of whom are said to have been sitting in the back seat of the car, watching. Blake's family is currently raising money for the operations required, the children, and any forthcoming legal defense on behalf of Blake. You can donate right now through a link on our website at www.talkeasypod.com. You can also simply Google Jacob Blake GoFundMe. There is no silver lining to this story. That he survived does not erase the incident, and it doesn't absolve the parties responsible for this. More details will be released, I imagine, in the weeks ahead, but there's no detail that's going to tell me that the appropriate response was to shoot a man seven times in front of his children. Seven times. There were multiple armed officers and one unarmed black man. There is no detail that could convince me that the best way to restrain someone is to shoot them seven times. So, this is to say, 
we will continue discussing this story on this podcast as more information is revealed. In fact, next week we're going to announce our lineup for September. Many of our guests coming on can and will speak to this moment. The bleak, unpleasant irony of this incident is that the work Tyler Mitchell creates actively combats the imagery we've been seeing on the nightly news. His debut monograph, now available, is called I Can Make You Feel Good. It's a collection of images that imagined what a black utopia could look like. It's a 206-page celebration of young black life. It shows exclusively black men and women in natural light, in sunshine, outside, in repose. They are glowing. Photos taken with rose-colored glasses. It is such an achingly poetic book for this moment. I can barely get through this. It is a portal not only into what life could look like for people of color, but what it ought to look like. You have likely seen Tyler's work in magazines like Vogue, ID, The Guardian, The Fader, or for clients like Calvin Klein, Prada, Apple, Nike. If you'd like to look at Tyler's work while listening to this episode, we've created a kind of virtual gallery to accompany the conversation. All you have to do is click the Listen Here button on the homepage of our website at www.talkeasypod.com. There's so much more to be said about Tyler and this magnificent collection of photos, but I'll just let him say it. To everyone listening, stay safe, stay strong, and enjoy the show. Tyler Mitchell, how are we doing? We're doing all right. I have to say, just from the start, you called this book of yours a declaration. Mm. And for those who are maybe unfamiliar with your work or just starting to get familiar with your work, what is this book a declaration of? Yeah, for those who aren't familiar, I think the book is a declaration of essentially a visual text of hope in a way for black folks, I suppose. Like in my images and in the images in the book, there are models, there are artists, there are friends, there are a number of their kids from Havana, Cuba. Basically, yeah, all the people in the book, I'm kind of positing as a family. And I suppose the images throughout the book and throughout my work are a declaration essentially, yeah, of a visual text of hope. Like people in all the images are reclining, they're embracing one another, they're swinging through through space, right? Whether that's on swings or kind of hula hooping. So they're either in motion or kind of at leisure. And all of those modes and states of being are basically about how that is, I'm kind of reinforcing that being okay, right? For black folks psychically, so yeah. Looking through it last night and then this morning, it really feels like everything we don't have right now people outside in the park reclining over a picnic on a swing i couldn't help but miss 
the world looking at it today? Obviously, that wasn't your intention. But have you been thinking about that? That's a really good point. I mean, the the funny thing about making work and then re-looking at it through the lens of the now is that obviously the work was made not in this moment, um, but then it, it both speaks to the moment, but also doesn't, right? So it's like of the now. And I think it's interesting that like a lot of people have reached out to me and it's less of my judgment or kind of opinion that matters at this point. It's more about the onlooker and what people get from it. But I have received, you know, a couple of those type of messages where it's like, this feels really amazing to look at for me right now, which I think is really, you know, I think every artist wants to hear that. It feels amazing also in another way, which is political and unfortunate. But after the last three months of seeing black life in a certain light, Mm. this feels so radically different. It does, and it's it, that's the really crazy part of making art, <laughs> you know? Yeah, of course. Actually, you know, and, and the, probably a lot of the things you talk about as well. I wonder, how do you feel about once it's done and put out, it is no longer yours? I'm a big preacher of that kind of philosophy, because it's not mine. I'm the least important person in the equation at this point. The book is about, you know, you or about anyone who's looking at it, you know? I don't know, like Marcel Duchamp really said that a lot too. And I really agree with his thoughts on that, that it's like if there are three poles of existence in art making, there's the the artist, the art, and the onlooker. The art and the onlooker are the two deciders of history and just the two deciders of like whatever that object or image or story's importance is. Yeah, I'm kind of out of the equation. Your sort of intro here, which is I often think about what white fun looks like and this notion that black people can't have the same. Growing up with Tumblr, I would often come across images of sensual, young, attractive white models running around being free and having so much fun. The kind of stuff Larry Clark and Ryan McGinley would make. I seldom saw the same for black people in images, or at least in the photography I knew. Mm. Can you speak to that kind of historical context in which you do arrive at shooting black people this way? Yeah, I think what I said was like photography essentially, basically before the past five years was predominantly a rich man's art form, you know, being that just like the the simple entry, like barrier to entry to like get a nice camera and to like develop your own film and to like have chemicals to do that. And like all of that basically before photography started democratizing rapidly at the rate it is at, kept a lot of black and brown folks out from just authoring their own stories. Like that was just already there. And I think that intro is so specific to me and my experience. And obviously it's a first person introduction. The images that I basically was exposed to, right, through these websites were predominantly like the leading voices in photography of like the 90s or the 80s or even early 2000s. And those predominant voices were, you know, white men, you know, sometimes, you know, white women. If you look at like Petra Collins, who I think is like the first kind of internet photographic phenomenon. But, you know, essentially we know that, you know, due to systems in place, black folks were basically boxed out of making images in the way they wanted to since the inception of photography. Now, there have been amazing black photographers like before, like for years, you know, people like Roy DeCarava, Carrie Mae Weems, people have been doing amazing work and the talent has been there. But in terms of like trying to make images 
in the now that kind of can spread to the mainstream. That's just now breaking through with black photographers. Yeah. Also, the style of someone like Roy DeCavra or Gordon Parks to compare your work to them would purely be on a racial basis. They have no stylistic similarity and their point of view is so radically different, it seems to me. I mean, you could maybe say like, you were like, I'm maybe pulling things from those photographers. Like Roy, I love that he's interested in the mundane, you know, I love that. Um, but stylistically, no, not at all. But I've seen people compare you to them. And I wondered, just on a human level, like, how does that make you feel? It's a good question. I mean, being that I'm, I just got named actually last year and was meant to be having an exhibition close to a month from today, where not for the pandemic, with the Gordon Parks Foundation. And that foundation seeing me as kind of a continuation of his legacy. I mean, to some degree, I, you know, like you said, I'm very flattered and um, I absolutely do feel that it's important to carry that torch, but you don't have to do it in the way that they did it. And I think there's like things about the now that are different than the existence they were living in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I wanted to go back a little bit. You grew up in Marietta. Uh, that is in Georgia for people who are unaware. It is a largely white, conservative, middle-class suburb of Atlanta. Unfortunately, I believe your classmates voted for John McCain in the 2008 mock election. That was the whiteness that you were in. When you look at yourself then, which is not that long ago, because you and I are the exact same age, what kind of person do you see? The biggest discovery at age 13 was really like, was skateboarding. Before skateboarding, it was a very kind of quotidian existence. It was a very kind of normal middle class, like you said, existence, a black kid in a largely white suburb not questioning a lot of the surroundings because those are the only surroundings that I was given and that I know, right? But skateboarding was a huge eye-opener in terms of I finally got into an activity that was bigger than that suburb, if that makes sense, that was more multicultural and that just felt more expansive. And by that, I mean, I basically started hanging around at 13 and 14 and 15, people who were from different parts of Atlanta who were from different backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, but all just love skateboarding and all hung out at the skate parks and whatever else, you know? So I feel like that was a big one in terms of like eye-opening for my surroundings. I mean, I definitely had a complicated relationship to Georgia, definitely always wanted to leave, even from a young age, but that felt like a community I finally got to that I loved. And that was also a big portal into what I'm doing now. There's a whole art form around skateboarding that I think most people don't even understand that is specific to like the filmmaking and the capturing and the art form of putting together videos of skateboarders skateboarding. So like I got really into that. When did you know you wanted to leave Georgia? I remember talking to my mom about and like Googling and like looking into like boarding schools super early. And she was like, you're fucking crazy. I'm not going to need boarding. You know what I mean? So it, the escape route was always something I was looking for. Do you ever think of that kid who worked at that cake bakery that you worked at? It was such a simple life. Like it was such a simple existence. Cake bakery and like cake bakery life. I kind of relate to, I don't know, in a way where I'm at now. In terms of like, 
such a beautifully kind of figured out existence in a way. Like, How do you mean? That job is kind of like tending to a garden, like moving cakes, selling cakes to people, really caring, like taking pride in that work. I don't know. That's like something I've always done, something I still do with photography. So, But I've always felt like that, like... I've been like even with photography, it's it's obviously an art form, and it's and I like indulge in it that way. But it's also a job, and it's also like something I take pride in on a daily basis. Of like, it's like tending to a garden; you have to grow it. And like, I don't know something about like being the cake bakery, like cake shop boy. I really loved. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's as simple and as beautiful as photography, and vice versa. It seems to me that that job the parameters would be really clear. This is not a terribly complicated job. It asks a few things of me. I imagine photography demands more of you as a person, though. As a person, yeah. But photographs are kind of like math problems in a way. Like, that's nobody's going to really admit that much. Every photograph that someone has responds to on a gut level has a lot of the same things, the same way you know as a filmmaker a good narrative has a lot of the same things as every other good narrative, you know, just some differences. I mean, for me, like, beauty is a huge hook. Making an image that is objectively beautiful can gain a response to engage people to go deeper in what the meaning of the image is, what the kind of, like, sociopolitical meaning is behind it, or what the artist's message is behind who that person is, or the contextual questions. But beauty is, like, an, a hook for an image. Can you tell what's beautiful based on practice and sort of formal training, or is it purely my gut is saying this works? Mm. Or are you really going the rules of thirds and going back to like Ansel Adams? <laughs> like, I mean, it probably does have some like golden ratio shit to it, <laughs> you know, some kind of numbers game that I don't even know, but it is instinctive. Like for on that on at that part, like I think that's why I bring up people like Ryan McGinley and Larry Clark because other people find other types of photographs beautiful. But for me, that's my idea of beautiful. Is I was like, wow, I really like that. I wanna I wanna live that. I wanna make that. I wanna instinctively when I saw it as a as a teenager, I was I, I just responded to the beauty in it. So for me, it was like that is what freedom and beauty looks like. When you're 18 and you come to New York, walk me through your first month of being in that city. I quickly got smacked in the face with, A, I arrived to New York. The way that I dress is whack. I need to get some clothes. <laughs> I dressed essentially like a Southern prep like on some Carlton shit out of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, like Southern J. Crew button-down shirts. And like nobody ever admits these phases, but this was a deep phase for me. It was like I really was committed to the button-down and to like the simple fits. And I was like, nah, I got to get some clothes. <laughs> um, and like I was like, y'all don't wear collared shirts all the time up here? And everyone's like, no. Like we don't, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> What happens outside of you changing your wardrobe when you're in New York? What are the other sudden realizations that you're having? Huge eye-opening experiences in terms of getting to New York University, you know, a huge and like expensive private university in New York for undergrad, for film school, for basically like a dream that's sold to you to write, to go to a great film school and like learn to be a filmmaker. That's basically like 
the basis of why I'm there. And basically being afraid that like all my classmates are going to be either Steven Spielberg's son or daughter or like have every camera in the world and basically have already like directed and written the script for their like genius short film that's going to get into Sundance, that's going to get them to, that's going to, you know, and so, so on and so forth. And So how do you manage? Well, getting past that spiral and that imposter syndrome, <laughs> yeah, I mean, deeper into going to school there, I had my fair share of kind of critiques about the film program and just like kind of the route that people want you to take, right? Because film school was immediately, what are you, a director, writer-director? You an AD? You a cinematographer? You an art director? You a gaffer? Like, what's your thing? And I was just like, I mean, obviously I didn't pay all this money and, like, take out all these loans to, like, be, like, not a director. Like, I'm hoping to direct a movie. Like, you know, or whatever. I mean, is that so presumptuous to say or whatever? But, um... I wanted to learn more about what was just in New York City, right? Like what cultural institutions, what things were going on, what was happening, what was basically on the street, so to say. And so I got more involved in photography as a quicker way to meet people. I basically started to meet people on the internet, like Kevin Abstract, um, Abra, a lot of like artists that I worked with just in school and just early on, people who I liked and found them completely outside of the school system's means. Do you know what I mean? So I think my critique led to like looking for creative exercise and practice and like basically things to do outside of school. Since you were from Marietta and you're going to this big place, I think one of the most seminal experiences, if someone is lucky and privileged enough to have them, is, is to go to a new city, to college, and have to figure out who are my friends? What was that like for you in college? It was very internet-based for me. I think I had some sense, even in 2014, 15, because I moved up to New York in 2013, so seven years ago. But at that time, 2014, 15, the internet was not at all what it is now. And it's crazy that it wasn't that long ago, but we often have to remind ourselves of that Basically, that wasn't even the main way by which people were doing things at all or meeting people or whatever. But I had some sense that that was going to be the main way that like all this creative stuff was going to go down. And so I was super invested in that in terms of like finding people on it, reaching out to people on it and like basically forming my community that way. And like school was great. I was like involved in school and whatever. But like I think my heart was really in like the internet and like finding people who weren't even in New York necessarily. Like Kevin was in Texas, like Grace Wales Bonner is a fashion designer I love. She's in London, but you know, we have a friendship now, you know what I mean? So it's like, I was kind of building just this community of people I was inspired by um, more over the internet. When did you know that you were an ambitious person? Not too late, but probably later than like most people might realize whatever their level of ambition is. Like most people might come to terms with like, I'm not that ambitious or I'm like X, Y, Z level of ambitious about this. I just like basically had a very like insatiable hunger that I didn't even realize I had. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Did you put work before making your social life make sense to you at that age? 100%. But I, it didn't look like work. It wasn't like, this is work. Of course. 
what it was was just like to me was making stuff and was trying to come up with ideas and make ideas happen. And it was just like making visual ideas happen was how I looked at it. I ask you that because we are both 25. I went to college in 2013, moved to San Francisco. And yeah, but in this pandemic moment, I can't really tell you what I did outside of the work. I have stray memories of like fun parties, but that's it. Was that the right path to take? It's a really crazy question, especially like you said, being the same age and like talking to a few of my friends also graduated college that year or around that year and realizing almost the exact same. It's like everyone who is in that age group or just call you know, has gone to a college experience in America in general, you don't walk away with this like kind of storybook-like friend group that is like the pack that you like go into life with and that you like do all your career shit with and that you like go on all these adventures with. Like it's a lot more patchworky than that. And I, I, I don't know if I can say for sure about like the right or the wrong way, but like one thing that did kind of scare me actually, like this is kind of a film. I photographed the campaign for all of Scott Rudin's West Side Story on Broadway, the like kind of redo that, or the kind of remake that he just uh, launched. We basically met because, you know, he asked me to do this, this campaign in front of house and you know, like the New York Times ads and things for the play, which I thought was a really cool idea to get a, like a really creative kind of more fashion art photographer to do basically theater ads. He kind of asked me the same question you just asked. And I was like, nah, I don't really have, I have one friend from college that like I still talk to, uh, two friends really. He basically was like, well, you know what your 20s are for, right? And I was like, no, what? And he's like, they're for getting ahead. And I was like, what? Like that kind of scared me because I was like, well, like maybe, but also if they're not, like it's not bad if they're not, you know, like if they, the 20s are maybe for making decisions to like get ahead, quote unquote, career-wise, but also maybe it's just for enjoying your life. You know what I mean? Like there's no wrong or right there. But I know that like my personality is very oriented around like meeting people and making stuff with those people. And like, those are my friendships, you know? Mm -hmm. If you look at those college years up to now, you know, being 25 now, it was just work, 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 you know, and it was really career oriented. And it, I, I, I like to think and probably feel that that was internal. You know, I like to think that that was my doing and my choice and like, that's just how I'm oriented. And that's what I truly love. And that's like not work. That's like actually stuff that I pour my heart into, but it's also probably some conditions created just in our society that try and orient people towards being careerist or whatever. And now, you know, I'm really loving this space or this opportunity to just like enjoy life a little more, basically, as like sappy as that sounds. Like basically, I mean, that's why I'm over here in London right now. You know, do you know what I mean? Like I'm just kind of floating, free floating in time and space and everyone is kind of free floating. If, if you kind of have a, a job that's not essential, you know, or considered non-essential or whatever, you know what I mean? Jeremy O'Harris and I were talking about that just having distance from needing to chase down whatever that like careerist impulse is in ourselves, which sometimes takes over. 
is uh, is real, real nice. It's nice to just do catching up on all the other stuff, basically. What's all the other stuff for you? What does that mean right now? Love. <laughs> yeah. Experiencing places in different ways. Being in London, I'm actually currently, currently in Paris, but I haven't seen this city in particular unless I've been here working. I've, I've come here to do shoots or I've come here basically for like work stuff, but I haven't like just walked around this city and just like given my mind space to ruminate on ideas or whatever that is. And that's like a real, real luxury that I'm very like hyper aware of in this moment. Um, but it's one that I think we need to take or else those impulses are going to kick back in and then it's just, you know, back on the hamster wheel or whatever. You've been on the hamster wheel for the last three to four years, it seems. Yeah. Not to bring you back there, but I do think people listening who are learning about your work would like to know what is kind of the practical process that you have of making photography, because I think your approach is fairly different based on what I know. Well, you know, the first thing is just kind of being like a real, like kind of full picture artist or photographer, I suppose, like a real totalitarian about how I kind of make stuff. I, I guess like I do a lot of the casting for who's in my work. I end up to some degree, you know, really imagining the picture top to bottom. And I think in the commerce space or in the commission space, that doesn't really happen a lot for photographers to be able to exercise that freedom and to be able to like fully employ their vision carte blanche and that comes from just doing that from the from the get-go that's kind of the only way I can work the people I cast are not kind of agency signed models or faces Um, sometimes they are but they're not often or in my favorite images they're more often than not kind of street cast folks in New York people I've found off Instagram again going off of the kind of internet impulse, just finding people whose faces and kind of personalities and ways of being I'm drawn to and that I feel autobiographically represent me or my experiences in a way, you know? Let's go to one actual example here because I wanted to pull a couple of these and we can point to them on our website so people can look at this. Mm -hmm. This is maybe my favorite in here. Wow. It feels like it's from the 50s or 60s. Mm-hmm. Tell me how something like this happens. Walk me through that process. That was a commission offered to me by Vogue magazine, actually. And the, the two people in that, who I think you may know or recognize, are the two stars of Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk. So here I am talking about people you don't know, but those are very known people. <laughs> um, but again, I, I'd say as you flip the whole body work, it's, it's all very contextual in terms of who the people are in each image. But that particular image is Kiki Lane and Stefan James from, from If Beale Street Could Talk. And this, yeah, this commission was kind of responding to not only the movie, but my own visual style and like implications of black love, thinking about how families and lovers have been imaged in the black community historically. And yeah. One could say I made a mistake in pointing to that photo, but <laughs> here's my counter to that which is that I do know who those people are. And I was not only not able to Im- immediately identify them, but they never look like this. Right. They were kind of transformed into a different world almost, right? Yeah. They've never seen them in a light like this, which I actually think speaks to what you're bringing to the table. And that's kind of the whole thing. That's kind of like what I got at in the forward was like, 
oh yeah, like no matter kind of who it is, like contextually you may know that XYZ is Beyonce or that XYZ over here is Spike Lee or that XYZ is Kelsey Lou or, or even just someone that you don't know, but you see kind of more of a unified vision of all of those people and they become a part of this world that's all one and that's connected to, yeah, like aesthetically. What do you remember about this photograph? That is, um, that's, that's actually a model as well. That His name's Al- Alton Mason. That photo was made before he was a model, though, properly. We, again, met through the internet and took some very informal portraits. And, like, his eyes and this film flare again and this defiance and this confidence in his gaze really was striking to me. It was just, it, like, instinctively something that I was drawn to. Also, like, his eyes and, like, a lot of the eyes through the book, I don't want to, like, be too prescriptive about it, but for me, they tell a similar story. Like, there's a real, like, unguardedness to a lot of the eyes throughout the pictures in the book and a confidence. It's like an unguardedness, it's a vulnerability, but it's also like a confidence and a presentational, like dignified, here I am kind of a look. Is that how you feel about yourself? For sure, yeah. Yeah, like it's autobiographical. You know? When you're going into these meetings to shoot on a commercial shoot or a magazine saying, shoot this, this, and this, and you're saying, I want to cast certain kinds of people that they're not familiar casting. They're not represented. They're not formal models. Right. How are you, as a young 20-something, talking to these people who are undoubtedly older than you and saying, I know you have your way, but you have to trust me on this? What is that conversation like? It's really nuanced because those people, you have to understand on some level their agendas. And you have to know that they have agendas and that they are comfortable with the way that they've been working. And that's a given to the conversation. And then you also have to hope that they've approached you under the pretext that they like what you've been doing and that they brought you into the room for what you've been doing, separate from the way that they've worked. And that as much as they have a way that they've worked, they also kind of would like to be pushed outside of that comfort zone, I think. I think that they're, in bringing me onto something, they're looking to be pushed outside of their comfort zone. Because um, otherwise they could have just gone to, you know, someone they've been working with for the past 10, 20 years. When, when you push them outside that comfort zone, have you had experiences where they say, I don't want to be pushed? Absolutely. And then I'm kind of, you, at that point, you, have to be, you basically have to make a decision on what battles to fight. <laughs> like, you probably know that as a director, like, be ready to say my way or the highway. And if they say the highway, then be ready to take that shit. If you're like, okay, you said the highway. So now it's the highway for this. Like if you go in with that kind of nothing to lose attitude, even if you secretly do have something to lose, it, I think it helps your case. So much of what I saw that was written about you is, is about you shooting this historic cover story for Vogue with Beyonce. What I am fascinated by is that you shoot the cover of Teen Vogue with the survivors of the Parkland shooting. A few months after that, you get the call to do this thing with Beyonce. Mm. You said of that call and that job that you felt it made sense. I want to know, why did you think it made sense? Well, I was interested in all of the things that I think the the assignment, the commission was kind of synthesizing. 
it was synthesizing music, right? You've got this big pop star. It was synthesizing fashion. I had been doing fashion stories, but I was doing them with kind of a more personal or autobiographical or kind of political twist, I suppose. And it was combining history. And to my mind, it was combining politics into the moment, you know, for what she stood for, for what me, me photographing and imaging her stood for. It synthesized all of that. I think, like, it brought together all my interests. And like, like you said, kind of Emma Gonzalez and the Parkland Survivors, you know, when I was photographing Lil Uzi Vert and rappers and musicians, Kevin Abstract, to kind of doing these autobiographical pictures about black men, masculinity, subverting ideas of what that is, you know, so on and so forth. So I think it synthesized all that. Did you feel anxiety going into that project? No. <laughs> Honestly, you, you, there was no like, oh boy, I hope we do this right. No, no. There was no anxiety. Like, honest, there was no anxiety. Because, like, you, cause you have to trust that, again, you've been asked to be there to do what you do. You can't, you can't possibly try and deliver something that you don't do in that moment. That's actually the moment to, like, go into your comfort zone and be like, this is exactly what I'm about, and this is what this, these images are going to be. And you knew what you were about. Yeah. That's not an answer... Yeah on the podcast or in life that I hear it's so it's so obvious it's like of course right mm-hmm. they brought me here for a reason if they didn't have a reason I right. wouldn't be here right there's all this pretense to like what a Vogue cover should look like right or like what this sh- or like what even a magazine cover should look like but the work I'm making is already trying to tear all that shit down so like why am I trying you know what I mean what's anxiety got to do with it at, the, at that point it's just about making the stuff you make. You do have some anxiety when you're juggling projects because you, you have here, you said at any one time there are a lot of different projects and I am definitely maybe on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Yeah, that part is the most stressful element of my life. <laughs> Where are you at with that now? Well, it's a pandemic, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, uh, in terms of like simply... Are you better at handling that? No, 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 no. Like, I'm pretty terrible at it. I, I think, like, the, I think, like, even literally yesterday, I tweeted something like, I need to figure my life out. Who wants to figure it out for me? Like, <laughs> I am bad at uh, responsibilities, I suppose. Why do you say that? It's hard to stay on top of stuff. I mean, I'm only one person. I think, like, I'm pretty, there's only, like, so much bandwidth in a way. Your father had a small business when you were growing up. He ran that business in the basement of your home growing up in Atlanta. That's where he started. But then he moved to an office space. It seems like you're in a very similar transition. Yep. That's the exact transition that I'm in. That is the exact transition that I'm in. Do you think about the big picture of all of that and what it means? Yeah. As much as I am a photographer, I also don't like to be pinned down to genres or to like one thing or another. So, you know, I still do have strong aspirations of making films. I have strong aspirations of kind of like continuing down into the fashion. You know, I want to see what 
my 100th Vogue cover looks like as much as I want to see what my first narrative feature film looks like. And then I want to see what my like sixth gallery exhibition looks like and my third, you know, international museum exhibition looks like. I like want to see all of those things. And so those don't have genres and like on a practical level, those require very different systems. The scariest part right now is like understanding or I guess figuring out or like structuring like what systems I need in the now that go beyond like myself, my phone, my MacBook and my bedroom. Because like it's not just as simple as like, okay, I've got like the business in the basement and I suppose now it's time to get an office. Like it, it's a little more intricate than that. You have to entrust people. Yeah, you have to delegate. Before we go, two questions. One what are the things you want in your immediate future for yourself, both in work and outside of it? Mm. In work first, I want all the things I just listed. I want 100th Vogue cover. I want to see what that 100th looks like. I don't want to see what the first looks like anymore. You know, I want to see what the, the 45th and the 57th and the 100th and 103rd exhibition. I want to see more ideas come to life in physical space. I want to see myself playing with images in physical space in like a really crazy way. First narrative feature with all like my heart and my like blood, sweat, tears and soul want to make. Then, you know, lastly, it's just any other projects that interest me and then I pick up, you know what I mean? It's like anything outside the box that I feel like doing. I always want to have those avenues available and open to explore creatively, you know, ideologically, whatever, you know. And I suppose right now it's just about like managing abundance and what order those things come in. And then out of work, I need to stop eating junk food, man. (laughs) I need to stop eating garbage and I need to run and I probably need to like, one thing I'm getting really good at recently in the pandemic is just enjoying silence and like appreciating and like being okay with like not being productive, not being hard on myself in situations like that. And also like enjoying the beauty of the now, going on long walks, shit like that. Like basically just slowing down the pace. I'm getting really good at doing. You not eating junk food is definitely the most honest answer in this whole (laughs) conversation. Why do you think you're good at what you do? Because I am transparent. I have no other way of operating. (laughs) Why does it make you laugh so much? Because like, why should that be a hard thing to be? But uh, that is, that gets you far. And that is important in trying to make something that you have to bring other people on to make. Like, Like transparency is the only thing and communication are like the only two actual tools we have in art like if you cannot communicate what you're trying to make how are you going to get like people excited to try and make it with you you know what i mean like all of that well i appreciate the transparency you've had in this conversation as for all the the things you want to do we will do a check-in in five years tyler mitchell thank you very much thank you sam
And that's our show. Special thanks today to Hannah Gottlieb Graham. Tyler Mitchell's debut monograph, I Can Make You Feel Good, is now available for purchase. You can do so at www.icmyfg.com. You can learn more about Tyler Mitchell and his work on our website at www.talkeasypod.com. If you like today's talk with Tyler, you may enjoy other recent conversations with artists like Hank Willis Thomas, Ted Danson, Roxanne Gay, Run the Jewels, Fran Lebowitz, Hassan Minaj, and Titus Burgess. You can find and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you do your listening. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, say hello over at talkeasypod at gmail.com. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our assistant editors are Eli Weiss, David Harding, and Rena Zhang. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our interns are Kieran Aftab and Patrice Lee. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back this Sunday with Miss Carol Burnett. Until then, much love to Jacob Blake and his family. And for everyone listening, please stay safe. So long. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm. The Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l e e s a dot com slash iHeart.